Bonnie Clayton and the Rat King. Sometimes it happened to captains' wives in their Rococo turrets rising over Lake Street to gaze out at the lake. And when it did, it was too horrible to imagine. So you had to cry at just the idea of it to drown out the rest of what might come. You had to press all the grief forward till your head hurt, to a point just above the bridge of your nose, between your eyebrows, and leave nothing for the details. The lake was cold. This is a November story. It takes place in November, and is best told then. But if it is some other month, you can surely remember, or imagine, the ice crystal winds howling in beneath the door, numbing your toes, even through the thickest of wool socks. See the foam whitecaps, the lake, the steel green-gray that is death. Emily Haversmith attended her senior prom with the son of the man she would marry. It was quite possibly her favorite in her rotation of party anecdotes. She decided that she liked it even more for the twinge of discomfort it always aroused in him. Bobby had been a perfectly nice date, but gay, and ran off to New York two months after graduation to attend a Juilliard. It could be worse, his father liked to say. He could be in a body bag in Vietnam. He liked his stock line for the same reason Emily liked hers. Not that they attended many balls in those days. Nothing like his days as an officer on the naval base. Captain Mike Haversmith. That was when he was married to Bobby's mother and Emily was attending Biscoff Harbor Elementary School a period which appears often and fondly in his own rotation of stories and conversational miscellanea, though always very earnestly and without malice. Emily understands this, and is why she takes such pains to mask her jealousy, to keep a straight face when it feels like his big hairy hand is wrapped around her stomach, her literal stomach, and he's squeezing it, twisting it, his grip so tight that the top and bottom balloon out on either side of his fist. They were wed six days after her 21st birthday. She liked to say that they waited until she could drink at their wedding. They could never agree on whether or not this was true, but she repeated it often enough that eventually it was. She canceled plans to road trip to Woodstock with her friends and went to Acapulco on her honeymoon instead. She liked well enough listening to her father's Glenn Miller records when he played them on Saturday mornings, but had never cared much for music otherwise. Her mother did not care for her marrying such an older man, even a man with as clean a repute as Mr. Haversmith, but by that point it was well-established fact within the family that Emily's older sister Greta had spent the better part of the past decade as mistress to a certain well-regarded Coast Guard captain, so she only complained a little bit. "'Why can't you work down here?' she'd asked him as they walked along the beach. It was sunset, their last night in Mexico. It looks nice now, of course. And it was. The little houses in the hills were turning on their lights, and they looked like constellations in a horseshoe around the bay. 
it's easy to forget that it's still an ocean. If you think the lake is dangerous or unpredictable, yes, but we could live here. I don't speak Spanish. La Capitan, she said. El Captain, he corrected her. Biscoff Harbor was nestled into the hills at the northern tip of a peninsula on a peninsula, a finger jutting into the gray, churning heart of Lake Superior, cut off from the rest of the world by miles and miles of almost uninhabited Northwoods wilderness. In school, Emily leveraged annual weather-permitting Christmas trips to visit family in Chicago to seem cool and cultured to her friends. On the second-to-last Sunday in November of her 29th year, her husband's ship, the SS Bonnie Clayton, was due to return by lunch. It did not. A small gathering of sailors' wives and children mingled on the dock amongst the type of folk who just liked to watch the boats come in for half an hour before it was decided that they must be delayed. It was not unheard of. The radio had predicted winter weather for that afternoon. In town, it amounted to little more than a spat of freezing rain, but dinner time came and went and the sun set somewhere behind the fortress wall of clouds, and still the Bonnie Clayton failed to appear. Emily returned to the dock to watch, but it was cold and when it grew dark, she returns to her home atop the bluffs at the corner of Lake and High Streets. Someone would call when there was news. The next morning, Emily bundled up and made the walk down to the dock, where now their nervous vigil was joined by concerned citizens and gossips. By the end of that afternoon, it was beginning to resemble a front-lawn crowd at a house fire. With the evening came more rain, and the crowd dissipated and scattered for home. Someone would call. Sunday morning was the last anyone heard from the Clayton's crew, according to one longshoreman. They reported clear skies, calm seas. On the third day, Emily did not report to the docks. She could see from her living room window that the ship was not in port, and she could not bear to be around all those other people. She wanted her grief for herself. Instead, she wandered the streets with no destination in mind, the mostly empty streets. Everyone who wasn't at the docks was in school or at work. Or, she thought, still out there somewhere beyond that chalk-foam horizon. Or, she tried to stop herself, beneath it. Eventually, she ended up down at Ashcroft Beach, three miles north of the dock, where they watched the fireworks every 4th of July. Swimming in the lake for longer than a minute or two was a molar-grinding proposition even then, even for locals. North of the beach were the breakers and the pier, and at the end of the pier, the old lighthouse. She took off her shoes, but soon her feet were too cold, and so she put them back on, and as she walked, she thought of Acapulco, and she could feel the wind rushing in off the lake and whipping her dress back against her legs, and she could see herself then, what she must have looked like, very far from Acapulco indeed, walking alone along the beach like that, her hair half-wrapped around her face. The boat captain's widow 
she saw herself, what she must have looked like. Then a strong gust blew sand in her eyes. She shielded her face with her forearm and steadied herself against the wind. There was Agnes Johnson, widow of Otis Johnson, who went down with his steamer near Sault Ste. Marie. She'd been very old for Emily's whole life. There were more of them back in the day, but one hanging around was enough to maintain the archetype within the town. There was a niche for her to fill, waiting for her back up on the hill, back in town. She arrived at the North Pier without ever really meaning to. The wrought iron access gate was normally locked when the swells were so high, but someone had neglected to do so, and Emily wandered out onto the pier. Once you are out over the water, the walk to the lighthouse is much longer than it looks, over a quarter mile from shore. Emily does not intend to go to the lighthouse any more than she'd intended to go to the beach or the pier, but she finds her legs carrying her in that direction. When she has been walking for several minutes, she notices that the water around her has calmed. The wind is quiet. She does not know if she has moved past the storm or the storm has moved past her, but the stillness sends goosebumps down the backs of her arms. The soft plunking lapping of the water against the rocks only serves to deepen the silence. A gull glides silently off the lake and lands in the surf beside her. The keeper's cabin is modest, with a red-gabled roof. Next summer it is scheduled to be repainted. The pier widens to accommodate it, and extending from the rear is a narrow corridor connecting the living quarters to the lighthouse itself whose winding, matching red stripe makes the tapered tower look like a candy cane or barber pole. In January, there will be a town meeting to decide what color paint to buy. Beyond that, the pier ends, and 150 miles of unbroken and untamed water begins. There's not left here to distract the November winds, howling, screeching, unimpeded off all that lake, and Emily feels it full force acting on her body, which suddenly feels startlingly frail. She puts her hands to her brow, even though there is no sun, and studies the horizon. Her cheeks are burning, but it is almost pleasant, except for the needle-jabbed handful of nerves at the very, very tops of her cheekbones. There's a big stone gray wall coming down from the north, and Emily doesn't want to be here when it arrives. She'll have to leave soon if she wants to be off the pier when it does. She'd always wanted children, or at least a child. Always pictured herself as a mother. Even when she married an older man, a man with children of his own, she'd wanted to bear another for him. She wanted a piece of him to hold on to. She wanted something that was theirs. But she now thought that a child would have only made all of this even more ghastly. A wash of spray crashes over her face, the droplets so big it almost feels like she's been punched in the cheek by a small child. The cold is existential. She shudders beneath a chill that cuts deeper than her bones into the core of her existence. 
The idea of a whole endless body of that, unimaginably deep, was unbearable. Horrible, horrible. He was out there. In the best of all possible worlds, he was still out there, on it, separated from those endless, ice-cold depths by some metal and a bunch of numbers on a chalkboard. The night-dark wall bears down and consumes half of the visible world. She should have left by now. The boat captain's widow. She stares at the agonizingly blank horizon and at the water and tries to fathom all that water. And what would that be like? Maybe there would be a perverse pleasantness beneath that pain as well, the slack-jawed, narcotic-tingling onset of a soul-deep numbness. There was so much of it. It was so unthinkably big. And she was so small, she could just disappear inside it. Her pain would be nothing, one dim distant star winking out in a vast night sky. It would be so easy, really so easy. What was one little star in a sky full of galaxies by the millions? She'd be letting go of the illusion of control, the agony of responsibility, the need to keep crying long after her tear ducts were drained and her back ached, rejoining the great swirl and churn of the universe. She was staring down where the water came frothing upon the rocks. She wavered in the wind, stuck out her arms to steady herself. At some point, she'd climbed down onto the rocks, though she couldn't remember ever having left the pier. Her heart skipped violently, and she could not even lift a foot to backtrack for fear of upsetting her precarious balance. She turned back around, just in time to see a wall of water waist-high coming right at her. He tried throwing her the lifesaver, but then the surf turned her over and he saw the wound on the back of her head and knew he would have to get in himself if there was any chance for her at all. He knew that he was under no obligation. In fact, such things were strongly, strongly discouraged on the simple principle that it did nobody any good to make an awful tragedy worse by doubling the death toll. And this was if she was even still alive, which, frankly from where he was standing, seemed doubtful. Her body twisted in the tumult and he saw her face and knew that he had to go in it, even if she was dead. He would not let the lake have her. She awoke in a wood-boarded room and a great deal of pain, all over but especially ringing on the back of her head into a hearty fire crackling steadily in the fireplace. She was curled beneath a blanket in a padded armchair in her underwear. She felt her head wet and sticky and throbbing. I had to stitch you up. A man came in from the other room, carrying a cup of some dark steaming liquid. He offered it to her. I'm no doctor, but I think it'll do. Sorry about your clothes. They're drying over there. He nodded at the stone fireplace. What happened? The man laughed. He couldn't have been more than twenty-five. I was hoping you might tell me. Where am I? Uh, Biscoff Harbor? Michigan? Planet Earth? The lighthouse. I forgot to lock the gate, but you're a maniac for being out here. 
My ankle hurts. Yeah, I fucking well bet. You probably twisted it in the rocks. I don't think it's broken, though. He poked at the fire and added a log to the pile. What time is it? The lighthouse keeper checked his watch. Five past nine. Oh, I should be getting home. He laughed again. You must have hit your head real hard. You hear that storm out there? Listening now for the first time, she did. You can stay here till it passes. I'm a very capable host. Unless you absolutely insist on dying tonight. She burrowed a little deeper into the chair. Nothing waited for her back home except a dark, empty house. I should call someone and let them know. Sorry, no phone. Who would she have called anyway? I guess it doesn't have to be tonight. The man disappeared into the other room and returned with a bottle of brandy. He poured some into a mug for himself and then presented it to Emily. She shrugged and nodded and he poured some into her tea. I thought they decommissioned this lighthouse already. They voted to automate it. Five years from now. They need time to save up the money for it. Oh. They only pay me $3 an hour, so Lord knows where all the money's going as it is. Oh well. He held up his mug and Emily reciprocated the gesture and then they drank. The fire roared as the new fuel caught and outside the waves pummeled the pier in endless whooshing waves. My husband was on the ship, she said. Uh, is on. She started to correct herself, but trailed off. The Clayton? She nodded, staring into the fire. I'm sorry to hear that. I came out here to watch for him. I'm sure they're all right. Probably just waiting out some weather. You have to say that. Would you prefer I didn't? I don't care what you do. A long silence followed. How long do you stay out here? Emily stared into her tea. Two weeks on, one week off. It must get lonely. Eh. I'm sure everyone says that. Eh. I'm sorry. Sorry? I care about what you have to say. I'm just... Yeah. And it sort of feels like it goes without saying, but thank you for rescuing me. You know, if I'd have called the Coast Guard, it would have cost the taxpayers over $3,000. Ugh, I'd rather drown. Emily blew gently on her tea and sipped it, and the keeper went to a desk in the corner of the room and filled a pipe. How old are you? She asked. How old do you think I am? Much too young to be out here. Where else would you have me? She almost blushed. It's an old timer's post. That's all. You should be out there seeing the world. I see it every day. Are you a monk? Not in any official capacity. 
Some pretty little thing must have really broke your heart, huh? Maybe once or twice, but I don't see what that's got to do with my profession. What are you going to do when they kick you out of here? If I tell you, you'll try to stop me. She frowned at him, and he smirked. My father kept a light, down on Mackinac. It was quiet then for the space of nearly five minutes as each of them sipped their tea and watched the fire and listened to the wind and the rain whipping at the walls. He started working there a week after he got home from the war and stayed there till the day he died. I saw him once a month. There was no school on the island, so my mom and I lived on the mainland. Will you go to another lighthouse when they automate? He took a long toke of his pipe. Which, in his hands, lit against his boyish face, seemed a bit like an admittedly endearing costume piece, and crossed his arms, seemed to study the floor. It sort of feels like history stepping in, you know? I guess a man's got some free will here and there, to an extent, but sometimes history is just one of those waves, you know? It's just stronger than we are. I don't know. Sometimes we forget that, I think, said Emily. It doesn't happen as much anymore, and we get fooled into thinking it never happens. You don't imagine a ship a quarter mile wide and a half mile long could sink, but... I don't know. Sometimes when I see them in the harbor, it's like my mind can't process that what it's seeing is real. A thing that big shouldn't be able to float at all. Like it's an aberration in reality or something. The lighthouse keeper finished his brandy and poured himself another. Every new generation since the Enlightenment has had to convince themselves that they've invented their way out of nature. It's all we've got. We worship technology. So we have to pity the past because they didn't have televisions and microwave ovens. They were, by rule of natural law and chronological luck of the draw, simpletons. Time marches forward and forward is progress. But then we have to live knowing that in spite of our suspicions that we may be the ultimate end goal of human evolution, someday we are going to be old and our grandkids are going to laugh at us, and that someday after that, we'll be dead. History will pass us by, and nature will be waiting there when it's gone. He took another sip of brandy. I'm sorry, maybe I've had too much to drink. I don't know if I'm even making sense anymore. It's nice listening to you talk, though, in any case. He grinned briefly, to himself, down into his lap, and swirled his drink a little bit, and it felt as if his throat were swelling shut, and he did not speak any more after that, and neither did she, and she drifted in and out of semi-sleep, and just after midnight the rain died down and the fire was at a low simmer, and she yawned and lifted her blanket. The lighthouse keeper started as if he'd nodded off himself, and looked at his watch. He moved to help her to her feet. Just after midnight, he said. Just after midnight. I wonder what my neighbors will say. He escorted her to the door.
The world outside was deliriously quiet. The moon was out and the stars shone cold and crisp. The fog of their breaths mingled in the doorway. Please do get home safely. I will. And I'm sure your husband's ship will be back safely any day. She smiled politely and nodded. What do you think happens when we die? He stared blankly at her for a moment. Sorry? She didn't repeat her question. Why are you guys always this way? Sorry? You guys. Women. Always wanting to know where you see us in five years as you're laying in bed, about to fall asleep. That's us, is it? You and I, lying in bed? He shook his head. Of course not. If you need to stay, I'll sleep on the floor. Don't be such a masochist. You can sleep on the couch. You're asking me if I think there's a heaven? Sure. I think it's nice to think there's a heaven. What do you think? She only stared at him. I think it's nice to think there's a heaven that we automatically get into just for participating, just for minding our own business. But I think the reality is we have to earn heaven. We have to build it. All of us. We all come from the same single cell organism. We're all just rearrangements of the same particles. We're all one thing. And we have to make heaven here on earth for ourselves. That's what I think. The Bible says God gave us Eden. And I've read my Bible. The lessons are in there. We just aren't learning them. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Three things, but all one thing. God is humanity. All of us, collectively. But, and God is you and me, each of us. But if we can be gods, then we can also be devils. God gave Adam the power to subdue the earth. And maybe we'll just keep living and dying like a little schoolboy arsonist, lighting matches just to watch them burn, rearranging ourselves into an infinite number of permutations until we get it right. And then there will be heaven everywhere, for everyone. Maybe that's evolution. Maybe, said Emily. Or maybe we burn all the forests to the ground and turn the oceans acidic, and in a thousand years nobody will ever have even heard of human beings. Doesn't that seem a little more likely than a million billion permutations? I suppose it does. But you're an idealist. I don't know if I'd say that. But a radical, certainly. Maybe. Maybe even a communist. Maybe. Maybe even a revolutionary. Who's to say? What are you doing sitting in a lighthouse? I told you. I'm seeing the world. She shook her head. So, you have a lot of women come out here lying in your bed? He smiled at her. Good night, Emily. She smiled back. Her shoes echoed on the cement, and she tried to keep her head down where things had scale and dimension. If she looked out too long at the darkness of the water and the vastness of the sky, she would get dizzy. 
the pier was not so wide that a couple of false steps wouldn't carry her into disaster. The moon glistened on the numberless little silken crests which were always forming and reforming on the surface of the black lake. When finally she reached the end of the pier, she turned around and saw the dark figure of a man some ways down, following her. It was the lighthouse keeper. She waited for him at the gate. Forgot to lock the gate, he said. Oh, she said, her voice still trying to catch up with her suddenly racing heart. Of course. Wouldn't want any more clueless damsels wandering out here in search of distress. She stepped through to the other side. He hesitated for less than a moment, and then dragged the iron shut behind her and began shuffling through his key ring. Emily wrapped one hand on the gate and waited for him. Thank you again. Sincerely. You never told me your name. Emily, she said. That's a nice name, said the keeper. What can I call you? The moon almost shimmered and was milk-sweet in her eyes. He looked at her through the bars and almost, almost reached to touch her hand, but did not, and, barely able to meet her eyes, managed to keep his voice steady and said, James. All of the neighbors were asleep as she crossed the gentle damp rise of the lawn in the chilly light of the street lamps, and then the dark hulking mass of the Queen Anne swallowed her, shadow undifferentiated from structure. She slept in a four-poster bed, and alone, it felt very big, like she might drown in it, and for a long time she did not sleep. She lay with a cut of moonlight across her quilted midsection, and her head light and delicate on the silent pillow, staring at the ceiling listening to the waves rolling in far in the distance at the fringes of her mental topography, a foggy estuary where waking world meant dreaming, feeling as if for three days she'd been breathing through her mouth and now air was coming in again at last through her nostrils, burning. Like her eustachian tubes had been closed up so long she'd just stopped noticing the difference and suddenly her ears had popped. She went to the shops downtown in the morning, and when she arrived in the produce section, with her list folded and refolded, tight in her palm, realized that she didn't know whether to buy ingredients to feed one or two. She looked around at the other customers, at Barb, the owner, reading a magazine behind the register. Think about how much you think about other people compared to your own problems. Nobody thinks about you nearly as much as you think about yourself. She could hear Mike in her head whenever she began to fret like this. She took a breath. Of course, maybe that went for average folk. Maybe that even went for her most days. But did it apply to freshly made sea captain's widows in insular little port towns? There was no choice to be made, really. Whatever had happened... At this point, she had to be seen planning dinners for two. A fridge full of leftovers would be a fitting totem, a black veil of full Tupperware containers and half-empty cellophane-topped casserole dishes. Or, of course, he would be delighted and comforted to see his favorite meatloaf or spaghetti waiting for him, ready for the microwave. In 90 seconds, he could kiss her, 
change out of his day clothes and into his night clothes, and prep the television and recliner just in time for her to bring him his plate with a beer and a napkin and another kiss. And why was this only the second thought which occurred to her, only as she finished replacing her groceries in the pantry and cupboards and sat down in the settee, only after a long walk past the post office and library and dry cleaners and all the way back home spent daydreaming about leftovers. She transferred the coffee cake she'd bought from the bakery box to her own Tupperware. In the afternoon, she returned to make an appearance at the dock and hug the other wives. No sign of the Clayton. The horizon was level and unbroken and inscrutable, and whatever lay or did not lay beyond it was held fast in the strictest confidence, inaccessible to the eyes, beyond reach of even the most clever curves of glass. She headed north, toward the lighthouse, but, feeling the eyes of the wives and gawkers on her back, she turned first away from the lake a few blocks, and traveled that way, via a more inland route. In the window of a squat yellow bungalow she saw an orange and red neon crystal ball burning electric in the window, in front of some half-broken blinds. Before she knew what she was doing, she was knocking on the door. Nobody answered. Nobody inside, as far as she could hear, moved. She knocked again and waited. She leaned back to confirm that her memory was correct. The sign did say, open. She knocked once more. When she was about to leave, there was a noise inside. Someone was coming. Several locks slid around, and then a blanket and bandana-clad girl with a cigarette in her mouth opened the door as far as the chain would allow. She looked as if she'd just woken up. Huh? I'm, uh... I'm sorry, are you open? Uh... I'd like to get a... a reading. Mmm. Tell you what, can you come back later? Um... I, I suppose. Tonight. Come tonight. Wait, Ruth? Is that you? The girl squinted. It is. You're Ruth, aren't you? It's me, Emily Haversmith. We were in the same grade together. Ruth mumbled something. We were in Mr. Pearson's chemistry together, right? Back tonight. Ruth shut the door. Emily listened to all the locks sliding back into place, and then she continued on toward the lighthouse. There was a clear, cold blue sky overhead. They were expecting snow any day now. The iron gate was ice in her hands. There were two posters affixed at eye height, yearbook photos of high school students. Drowned. She jostled it until she was sure it was locked. There was not very much wind, but even still, she very much doubted if James would be able to hear her yelling from the lighthouse. And yelling like that would have been supremely undignified in any case. The gate jutted out several feet beyond either side of the pier in an effort to prevent exactly what she was about to attempt. The cake would not fit under or between the bars, so she tucked it under one arm and began to climb around. 
The way out was manageable if she did not look down. But then she did. And then she had to find a way to swing around to the other side, a maneuver which had seemed much more manageable from the pier. She swung around, felt the full force of her weight at the apex of her arc. The iron shuddered, groaned, tore at the skin of her hand. She dropped the coffee cake and wrapped her free arm around the bar, but her foot slipped and shot through the gate. Rusted speckles sliced her palms on the way down until her grip failed. She hooked her knee around the bottom of the gate and hung there, upside down, screaming, her body racked with pain. She eventually managed to reach the gate and pull herself upright, where she clung to the iron bars like a baby capuchin monkey. Then she began screaming with a purpose. She squinted against the sun and saw something moving in the distance. The tiny figure of the lighthouse keeper, growing larger by the second, sprinting down the pier toward her. Soon, the small dot had transmogrified into a full-sized man standing in front of her. She could see his pores, the terror in his eyes. He had arrived much earlier than even her most optimistic estimate had allowed. He was trying to speak, but it was several moments before he caught his breath. <sighs> you stupid woman. I'm sorry, she had been crying. My leg really hurts. He began carefully making his way out to her. Careful, it's slick. Clearly. He reached her and hauled her up and steadied her as they returned. She was crying again by the time they returned to solid concrete. I brought a coffee cake. Back in the cabin, he doted on her as if he had again pulled her unconscious out of the surf. Despite her insistence that she was fine, only a little shaken is all, he brought her broth from the soup he'd been making. Didn't you see the signs? Everyone thinks these things don't apply to them, like they make them for some other person's benefit. Why is it locked in the first place? He brought her hot chocolate and covered her in a blanket. I came here to watch for my husband, she said. Of course. Clear day out there. You can see just about halfway to Thunder Bay. She stood in front of the lighthouse and made a visor with her hand and felt the wind whipping through her hair and her dress. And once more, she felt as if she were outside herself, seeing herself clearly and feeling as if she were looking at some other person. The sea captain's widow. What comes after the pity? She tried to think of Agnes Johnson, of how people treated her. The casseroles and the stews would dry up eventually, but the lip pursing, the head shaking, the it's a real shame about Haversmith's old lady, that would last forever, wouldn't it? And maybe even the town needed it, needed her, slinking about in the shadows of her own home and standing solitary on hilltops gazing out at the lake and crying in the back of the church when she attended. The town could throw all of their fears upon her grieving, and they would be swallowed like sticks in a fire. She would bear her role so that the rest of them did not have to. The worst had happened, and it had happened to her, so that it would not happen to them. She shouldered this tragedy so that they might not lay awake at night listening to the lake and thinking about the next. 
James appeared at her shoulder, startling her. Here. He handed her a key. It's the spare, so you won't have to worry about me taking a nap or nothing like that when you want to come watch for him. Back inside, they sipped brandy and sat, watching the fire and listening to the waves. You ever feel like the rest of the world already ended while you were out here, and you just didn't notice? I dream about it a lot, and then I go crazy when I wake up because I can't prove to myself otherwise. It starts to feel like I'm living in the dream after a few days, or some sort of in-between place. You should be here when the fog rolls in. How does it end? In your dreams. It's different every time. It's not such a hard thing to imagine, though, is it? I don't give humans much more credit than lemmings these days. That was a staged thing, you know. What? The lemmings. They don't do that on their own. A producer drove them off the cliff so that he could film it for a nature documentary and then claimed that they were committing spontaneous mass suicide. Well, James smiled. Even better then, right? I have these ants in my house, said Emily. They used to bother me to no end, but lately I don't mind them so much. They're company. There's not too many of them, and mostly they just march around. I can't stand the stillness. A couple days ago, I noticed maybe half a dozen of them on the kitchen countertop. I watched them, and after a few minutes, it became apparent that they were lost. They were following each other in endless little circles. When I checked on them this morning, they were still there. They traced that same circle on my counter, over and over again, till every last one of them dropped dead. James nodded and stared down through the bottom of his brandy cup. My grandfather fought in Europe in the First War. He never liked to talk about it much, but when he got old, he got dementia, and sometimes he'd say strange things. Sometimes when he talked to me, I got the sense he thought I was someone else. He died a few years ago, but a couple of months before he died, he was over at my house on New Year's Day to have dinner and watch the Rose Bowl. And at halftime, my mother and father were both out of the room for one thing or another, and my grandfather muted the TV. He turned to me and looked at me in the eyes and said, I died in Cantini in 1918. It scared me, but for some reason I laughed and said, No, you didn't, Grandpa. How else would you be here right now? He didn't laugh, or even smile. He just kept staring at me. The Germans were shelling us day and night for three days, softening us up. You can't imagine what that's like, and nothing I can say would help. On the morning of the fourth day, just before dawn, they charged. They were almost on top of us before we even knew it. We were routed. Men started fleeing almost immediately. We never had a chance. I saw people butcher all around me. You never really know what you're made of. I mean, what you're really made of on a fundamental level till you've seen the human body turned inside out and torn to red sludge right in front of your eyes. A guy who was talking to you two minutes ago and now he's just parts. 
I tried to climb out of our trench, but some Hun swung his rifle and took me out at the ankles. Someone got him before he could finish me, and then that was it. They swarmed in and over us like cockroaches. Our nightmare of three months made real flesh and bone. In the same place, we'd been sleeping and eating and shitting for three months. I could reach out and touch the wool of their coats as they shambled past by the dozen. I laid still and was lost in the whole tidal shift of the thing. There were others in the mud to my left and my right, at my feet and over my head. As far as I could tell, they were all dead. There were some fellows not so far away coughing up blood or moaning out in pain, and someone always came by to clean them up real quick, usually with a bayonet. You spend your whole life wondering how you're going to die, and then you see it happening right in front of your face while you wait your turn. A few of the enemy lingered in the trench and picked corpses clean of boots and other valuables, but most passed through and continued the assault. A half an hour passed, then an hour. Even when nobody was in sight, I could always hear voices speaking German above me on either side of the trench. I could hear the fighting. It sounded like they were off in the town itself. It was nearly dark when I heard voices down in the trench with me. Three or four krauts, maybe twenty or thirty yards to my right and around a bend. I don't know what they were saying, but I know it was different than what I'd been hearing all day. It was casual. They were laughing, even. Nobody was barking orders. When one of them fired their weapon, I nearly shit my pants. And then another shot rang out, and another. Their rifle barrels were smoking when they came into view around the corner. One of the soldiers towed a corpse like he was testing it, then shot it in the head. They went through the trench like that, which was carpeted with so many bodies that they could have done the whole thing without getting their boots muddy. They seemed to pick and choose at random who they shot, and it was getting dark. There was an officer's quarters behind me, and I thought about trying to crawl back there to hide, but I knew if they saw me moving, even out of the corner of their eye, I'd be dead within five seconds. And then someone started screaming out, and I'll never forget the sound of it. I hope you never have to hear anything like it in your life. I think it was Private Tillman. But by that point, they were so close I couldn't move my head, or even my eyeballs, to see for sure. He'd been playing dead like I had, and they'd found him out. The guy had his bayonet at the boy's throat, and then he started pushing it in, slowly, deeper and deeper until the screaming stopped. It was getting darker by the minute. They were only shadows and silhouettes moving around me. I knew they'd be getting to me any second, and I knew I had to hold my breath without looking like I was holding my breath. I didn't know if I should leave my eyes open or close them. Soon the voices were right above me. I could feel the bodies jostling around me. And then a giant leather glove grabbed me by my jacket and shook me around. I waited for the gunshot. I wondered if I would even hear it from that close. Or if the lights would just suddenly go out. I remember 
I remember how the mud felt in my hands. It was so cold. It was colder than anything I'd ever felt in my life. But he didn't shoot me. He moved along. And I thought I would be in the clear until I heard one of his compatriots rack around into the chamber of his gun only a couple feet from my head. It was the first I even knew he was there. He nudged my head with the barrel of his gun, and then he started speaking. I don't know what he said, but I know he was talking to me. But then his gun jammed. And the next thing you know, our boys were counterattacking, and everyone was in a big hurry to get out of there. The game was back on by then, and he turned to watch it. The last thing he said about it was, Sometimes I think all of this is just some crazy dream. All of you. And in reality, I'm back in that trench. In fact, I never left it. Maybe I've been in the trench all along. All the next day, Emily sat in various rooms around her house, waiting for the phone to ring. A light, cold mist of rain persisted into the afternoon when a fog settled over the town in its wake. The phone did not ring, and Emily could no longer lie to herself. She'd also been waiting until the time was appropriate that she might pay a visit to the lighthouse. It was only natural, she reasoned, that a sort of nervous excitement might temporarily overshadow the droning, gnawing dread she'd been carrying like a lead vest the past few days. Any little light would seem bright in a tunnel. But what was she nervous about? What was she excited for? That she could not say. The matter of when it was or was not appropriate to return to the lighthouse was a rather amorphous one and went mostly on Emily's instincts, which she declined to interrogate. What mattered was that it was solidly after lunch now, which seemed a respectable enough time to reappear. Respectable to who? She shooed the question from her mind with a wave of her hand. She felt a little special having let herself through the gate with her own key. She laughed at herself, but it was true. It was the feeling she had when she and Mike were first married, and he took her on a tour of the ship. She was like a showpiece on the runway. She could feel the jittery confidence in her legs, propelling her almost out of her own control down the pier. Okay, so there was something about James that intrigued her. She could admit that. There was no sense in lying to herself. But it was only because, she reasoned, in the back of her mind she expected the phone to ring tomorrow morning, or maybe the morning after that. She expected it like she expected the sun to rise. The alternative was not something she could countenance. Not really. Not on any real level. So one more day with no calls was like when her parents had flown to Buffalo without her when she was 16 and their flight back was delayed so she had another day to herself, had to wake herself up for school in the morning and order her own pizza for dinner. Nothing more, just a temporary blip in the normal and proper routine of her life. 
an extra day of freedom. Well, not freedom necessarily, she thought. That made every other day sound like, what, captivity? No, not freedom per se, but maybe something like it. She knocked on the door to his quarters, but he did not answer. She was carrying two Tupperware coffee cakes. She tried looking in the window, but it was too dusty to see much. So she went around back and on toward the lighthouse. The door was open. She stood on the precipice and peered into the gloom and found that her voice had abandoned her. She could not call out, could barely squeak. Hello? And then there was a man screaming somewhere in the concrete bowels of the structure. James. She ran inside and clambered down the spiral staircase to the lower level. There he was. He was pale and sweaty and breathing heavy. He had a kind of wild look in his eye. He cracked a half grin at Emily. Want to see something? She descended the last few stairs and tried to pause, but James nodded her over. He was standing over an open grate in the floor, and for the first time over the din of the lake, she could hear a pitched, scritching, scratching noise, a high, dry-throated squeaking. She recoiled immediately at what she saw, though it took her mind several seconds to process and decode what her eyes were seeing. A squirming, writhing mass of gray and brown, patchy fur and twitching tails. Rats. Big ones. Dozens of them. Wriggling in a chirping, ever-moving ball of teeth and whiskers. She almost threw up. I'll be damned, said James. What's wrong with them? Emily spoke through both of her hands. I believe they're stuck. In the pump? To each other. And they were. Their tails were knotted together in one tangled fist, subtly pumping like a malignant tumor as each rat pulled hard in its own direction, over and over, cinching the knot tighter and tighter. Their vocalizing was hoarse and desperate. James returned the great cover. You're just going to leave them there? And what would you have me do? They'll take care of themselves, same as your aunt's. Or the pump will fill up and they'll drown. Emily balked a bit of the violence, though. In truth, she'd been imagining something in the Hammer or Mallet family and was secretly relieved at how passive and sanitary James's methods were. The fire in James's quarters was already roaring and they each ate two helpings of cake before James asked Emily if she wanted to step outside to watch for her husband's ship. Yes, of course. She opened the door onto a wall of fog. Someone could have been standing five feet from her and she would not have seen them. She stood there as if she'd been caught in the commission of some crime and neither said anything for an unbearable interval of time until one of them chuckled, and then the other chuckled too. Right. She closed the door and returned to the settee to stare at the fire. Who did that to them? To who? The rats. Who did what? Tied their tails together like that. Nobody. It just happens like that sometimes. What? 
How? He shrugged. I told you, though, didn't I? It's not so hard to imagine. The end of the world. It's not unprecedented. Nobody has to design it. You could just... I wish I'd never seen it. Go find someone in Vietnam, in Korea, whose cities and homes are flattened, their forests and fields on fire, whose friends have been disappeared, their children killed, and tell them that they're not experiencing the apocalypse. Have you read Silent Spring? We think there will always be some new technology to save us that will invent our way out of global warming, out of nature. We forget that humans are just another piece of nature. We think that we can oppress people indefinitely, that there will always be some new chain technology to keep him bound. Riot control, Agent Orange, bomber jets, electrified fences, and panopticon guard towers. But nature will always overcome whatever puny thing we put against it. The levees will fail. The prison walls will break. No technology can ever contain the human spirit. I hear you, I hear you, for Christ's sake I hear you. But must I imagine the end of the whole godforsaken world all the time? Isn't it enough that my world has ended? Why else do you come here every day? She could smell the brandy on his breath, and she felt a little bit drunk herself. She could feel her face tilting towards his, and it felt a little fuzzy. Just a habit at this point, I guess. She barely had to speak above a whisper. It's not just a habit. Their lips met, and she felt as if she were levitating, and neither hesitated. They shed their clothes and made do with the awkwardness of the settee. He tried to send her home after dinner. The pier is going to freeze over any night now, and then you will have to use the catwalk to get in or out of here. No way do I trust you up there. But she lingered well past ten, and he did not protest. Snowflakes had begun to fall when she emerged onto the pier, and they did not kiss goodnight, but in the moment decided on an awkward hug. On her walk home, she remembered the psychic and wondered if she might take her this evening instead. The little yellow house was only a couple of blocks out of her way. It was late, but the woman had been sleeping in the afternoon. Who was to say how she spent her evening hours? The neon open light was still on in the window, so Emily, still feeling a little drunk, knocked on the door. The girl answered the door almost immediately. You're back. I'm back. Normally I do not meet strangers at such strange hours. Ruth, we're not strangers. We were in the same grade, remember? She seemed to study Emily a moment, and then the door shut. A long moment later, she heard the chain rattle, and then the door opened wide and the girl gestured her inside. She was short, maybe five feet tall on her tiptoes, in Emily's estimate. She led her into the kitchen and pulled out a chair for her at the table. Emily wasn't sure what she'd been expecting. There weren't any beads in the doorway, no tapestry on the ceiling or incense burning on the bookshelf, though there was an ashtray full of Newports on the table. 
It was just a kitchen. I said to come back that night. Not to come by any night you want. I'm sorry. Would you like me to leave? The girl grumbled something and sat at the table across from Emily. How have you been? It's been so long. It will be five dollars. Emily pulled the bills from her wallet. Ruth tucked them in her bra. So do you have a crystal ball? Or what are they called? Wedgie boards? Do you want a show? Or do you want to learn something? Do you think I can just wave my hands and look into a crystal and tell you where your husband's ship is? Emily started to say something, but realized she did not know what she was going to say and stopped. I'm sorry. That was too harsh. It's all right. She began to shuffle a deck of tarot cards on the table, and then she fanned them out for Emily. Pick whichever one speaks to you. She did. She turned it over and placed it on the table. The fool, she said. Great. Ruth stroked her chin and examined the card. Look at him. You see? He is walking straight off a cliff. Maybe I really should have seen you earlier. I think I may have already done that. Now Ruth studied Emily. Hmm. Perhaps not just yet. Her phone was ringing when she returned home just before midnight. Her heart sank and fluttered and sank again. Was she about to faint? She made her way to the kitchen, each step more uncertain than the last, and answered. The body Clayton was lost at sea. No survivors. Oh, okay. Thank you. She felt very hot suddenly. She hung up the phone and went to her bed. She lay curled there for more than an hour, watching the lamplit snowflakes fall past her window. She gave herself permission to cry, but no tears came. She closed her eyes and found only the insides of her eyelids. She stood and looked out the window. Through the naked trees to the north, she could see the lighthouse blinking in the dark. The whole town lay silent beneath a thin quilt of snow, and her footsteps crunched delicately on the sidewalks. She half ran all the way to the pier, and her breath burned in her throat. There were snowflakes in her hair when he answered the door, and the tears on her cheeks had started to freeze. She looked like a fawn left curled in the tall grass by a mother who never returned. She was the most agonizingly beautiful thing he had ever seen. He let her inside. She made it only a few steps and then fell into his arms. It was several minutes before she told him about her husband. The weeping subsided into a sort of Silent, sniffling shaking, punctuated now and then by heart-rending little whimpers. They made love once more, this time in James's bed, and fell asleep after in each other's arms. It was still dark and James was still asleep when Emily awoke. 
A phone was ringing in the other room. She felt like she was floating as she left the bed and went to answer it. Is this Mrs. Haversmith? Yes, this is she. Static on the line. This is Rear Admiral Jake Scott, Coast Guard. Ma'am, there's been an awful mix-up on our end. We've just been in contact with your husband. He's perfectly safe. The SS Bonnie Clayton has been up in harbor in Grand Portage waiting out some weather. You're serious? You... You really mean it? She bit her knuckles and shifted lightly, unconsciously, from foot to foot. There were tears welling in her eyes. They're on their way home now, before everything freezes over for the winter. Oh. Oh, you're really serious, aren't you? Thank you. Thank you. She hung up. Her skull was all abuzz. She dressed herself silently and found her jacket and stepped outside. The snow had stopped and the night was as still and cold as the grave. The sight of all that black bone cold water nearly made her dizzy and the silence was so great that it took shape in her ear canals. She could feel the weight of it burrowing into her. The pier looked like a finely chalked Olympic balance beam. Her boots rolled through the thin virgin powder like little firecrackers in her ears, like she was on an immense black box stage with a silent and judging audience holding their breath out in the dark nether regions just beyond the outer limits of her vision. Like any minute now, she might hear a semi-suppressed cough from off in the shadows, a rustling program in the balcony. The stars were out in vast shimmering clouds and she realized that she had not seen a clear night sky for weeks. She could not help but get lost in them and several times caught herself only a step or two from drifting off the walkway entirely. The street lamp which stood where the pier met land shone like a terrestrial north star, slowly growing larger and brighter with each passing minute. Soon she left the lake behind entirely. She felt almost as if she were gliding, guided by some benevolent hand. The neighbors must really think I've gone and thrown myself off a cliff somewhere for how much of a ghost I've probably seemed this past week. Staying inside all day with my curtains drawn, floating by the window like a specter, coming and going at all hours of the night. Then, a momentary burst of cold fear in her stomach. What if they mentioned all of her late-night absences to her husband? She'd need a plausible story. The fear subsided. There would be time for that later. There would be time for everything. There would be so much time. At home, she turned on all of the lights and put on a pot of coffee and cleaned the house till sunrise. She tried to lay down for a nap, but even without the coffee, she would not have been able to fall asleep. She watched the light in the room slowly change as the sun drew higher and brighter in the sky. The absolute peace that held sway within the room in that hour, eventually, lulled her to the precipice of something very near sleep. And then the titanic bass blast of the SS Bonnie Clayton's horn tore through her consciousness, practically grabbed her by the shirt collar, and yanked her upright in bed. <laughs>
She'd lamented once to her husband that the most disappointing part of being an adult, she thought, was that she could not see the magic in most things anymore. But this was it. Pure, unadulterated Christmas morning joy. She bundled herself and walked so fast to the dock that she practically skipped there. Already, a small crowd had gathered around the gangway. When the crew appeared on deck, a great cheer went up, and soon after, they began to file off. Her husband, the captain, was the last to disembark. She ran to him, fighting back tears, and jumped into his arms. She could smell his cologne, feel the crisp starch of his uniform beneath her fingertips. His whiskers had grown long, and they made his face strange and exotic. His eyes, his eyes. He held her out at arm's length and looked at her, and smiled at her the way he smiled at her. Emmy. She buried her head in his chest and let herself cry. They walked home hand in hand, making very slow progress for how often she insisted that they stop so she could hug him. At home, she made him pancakes and bacon and coffee, and he kissed her and touched her cheek and went upstairs to lie down. She sat down and settled in to do some crocheting. She knew what she was asking him to do, with her occasional aloofness and pointed, discontented sighs now and again. She wanted a family. She wanted to hide eggs on Easter and go to t-ball games and graduations. She was asking him, essentially, to do it all again, and now as an old man, to start another life with her. And she knew it wasn't fair, but she couldn't help it. She loved him, and she wanted to start a family with the man she loved. That was her only crime. Wanting for herself what he'd given to his first wife without question, without hesitation or reservation. Wanting what she was entitled to as a woman and as his wife and as a human being. Why should she have to sacrifice everything and he nothing? Last Christmas, Emily overheard her grandmother, who could barely hear anything anymore, ask her mother when she and Mike were planning to have kids. Her mother said that there were no plans for any kids in the immediate future. Her grandmother grumbled something and said, At least Greta had the good sense not to marry hers. It made her so upset she could barely speak all through the dinner, but the part of it that made her the maddest was that a part of her thought her grandmother was right. But there was something different in him now. She could sense it even on the walk home. Something in the way he looked at her, the way he laughed, the way he spoke about the future. He seemed rejuvenated. He seemed, dare she say, ready? No, she daren't. She daren't. But a girl could dream. She heard his heavy footsteps on the floor above her, his boots chunk-chunking down the hallway like a train easing into the station, toward their bedroom, and a long morning nap, coming back toward her. She awoke in the dark.
The lake was rising and threatening and crashing angrily all around her. She was in bed with James. He was still asleep. Sharp little whips of wind and ice tested the cabin windows. She rose from bed. No phone was ringing. She cupped her hands to the icy window. A steady storm was blowing. The lighthouse was in a snow globe. She could barely even see as far as the water. A few embers were still glowing orange in the fireplace. She put on her coat and listened to James' steady sleep breathing and then she went outside with her hands in her pockets and her head tilted forward against the wind. Her feet plodded silently on the powder. Down the pier she went, always trusting blindly that it would still be there in another ten or twenty feet. It felt like she was walking off the edge of the world, or already outside of it. Her ears were throbbing and glowing red beneath the bite of the wind and hail. She could not even see a glimmer of the street lamp at the end of the pier. The world around her felt more like a dream than the world of her dream had. She walked what she was sure had to have been the full distance of the pier, as she knew it from coming out in the daytime, and then tried to convince herself that it was only half the distance at best, so that she would not risk getting discouraged before she reached the shore, which she secretly still suspected would happen any second. The light appeared faintly at first, a glowing haze. The waves grew louder the closer she came to shore. The whitecaps began to roar and roll on either side. Darts of snow nipped puppy-like at her rosy features and crosswinds tottered her this way and that. She was no more than a hundred feet from the light when she first glimpsed the figure standing beneath it. Just a flickering shadow in the blowing clouds of snow. As she moved closer, the shape of a tall man began to materialize, almost as if formed by the snowflakes themselves. With broad shoulders, his hands in the pockets of his long coat, she stopped. He was wearing a hat like the one her husband always wore, and it cast deep, macabre shadows down over his face. And in fact, mostly, he was shadow. He seemed, by all indications, to be staring patiently at Emily. There was, very plainly, nowhere else for her to go. As she drew closer and his proportions became more apparent, it seemed, somehow, entirely possible that this was her husband, standing against the weather, as still and rigid as a statue. She began to see familiar subconscious details. She saw errant snowflakes collecting in the wool fibers of his coat. He remained all grim shadow, featureless. She drew closer and closer and waited for some sort of sign or acknowledgement from him. She was undeniably close enough, even with the noise of the wind, that some sort of greeting should have been made by now. Even if it wasn't her husband, 
even if it was some stranger out alone in a storm at whatever dead hour this was. She could feel his eyes, the suffocating weight of judgment which emanated from him. Her stomach felt like it was full of worms. She was nearly even with him now. Though she still could not see his face, she felt in her limbic brain quite sure that this was her husband. Finally, she stopped, waited, for if she had gone any farther, she would have been past him, which was what her racing heart really seemed to want. But where else would she have gone? She seemed to know on some innate level that there was nothing out there for her, nowhere for her to go. She could return to the house to dawdle some more in purgatory. But eventually, no matter how long she put it off, she would end up back here. She stood as far from him as the width of the pier would allow, which was not very far. She would, apparently, have to be the first to speak, if her voice would work. Mike? For a moment, it seemed even this would not be enough to provoke a response. For a moment, Emily began to wonder if this really was a statue or wax. Emily. It was Mike. Her heart galloped ahead like a horse with a broken leg. What are you... She didn't know what to say. She ought to have foregone language entirely and raced to hug him, to embrace him, to have him in her arms and never let him go again onto that terrible lake which had miraculously spit him back up for her, to feel his weight and warmth against her. And yet, it was unthinkable. In fact, it was revolting. She would rather turn around right there and jump into the lake. What am I doing here? I came to ask you just that question. It was Mike's voice, but drained of all warmth and joviality. Has the lighthouse keeper been good company in my absence? No. I mean, I, I suppose he's nice enough. I've been coming out here to watch for you. In the silence that followed, she could feel herself crumbling beneath his gaze. Oh, I'm sorry, her voice broke. I'm sorry, they said you were dead. He did not speak, did not waver. If he breathed, she could not hear it over the wind. Please forgive me. I waited for you. I waited every day. They said you were dead. Her jaw was trembling. I want to trust you as I once did, he said. But how can I? I wish things could be as they once were 
but how could they? Please. Please, you can trust me, I promise. It's me. I'll do anything. Baby, I thought you were gone. Her words hung in the air between them. For the first time since she'd laid eyes on him, he moved. He reached into the breast pocket of his coat and handed her something from it. It was the straight razor she'd given him on their first wedding anniversary, which had traveled with him on every voyage since. He couldn't stand the kids those days and their wild, unkempt beards. His initials were carved into the ivory handle. And then he walked away, whistling some old, familiar tune which she could not quite place. It was still dark when he awoke. The nadir of the night, far, far from morning. Instantly he sensed that he was alone in the bed. He reached out and confirmed as much. Still, the room felt keenly off balance. The particles were abnormally arranged. The energy moving through the whole cabin was faintly sour. He sat up in bed. If he was a prairie dog, his ears would have been twitching. But he didn't know what he was looking or listening for. All of the little nooks and alcoves in the corners and dead spaces of the room had been transformed while he slept and made subtly menacing. The toilet flushed and he nearly fell out of the bed. The bathroom door opened and before he could blink, Emily was crawling back into the bed. I'm cold. She pulled herself closer to him. Her hands were frigid. James adjusted and tried to go back to sleep. Hey. He felt her breath on his neck, warm and wet. You know what you were saying about how we're all just energy and particles coming together and falling apart? He laughed. Jesus Christ, can't you just ask where we'll be in five years? Don't you want to know if I want to have kids someday? James, I'm being serious. I mean it. Yes, okay, that stuff I said. What? Do you really believe it? I don't know. I think so. As much as I believe anything. There was a long pause then, in which James eventually thought, for a moment, he was going to manage to fall back asleep. Does that mean you're not afraid to die? He wasn't sure if he'd heard that or dreamt it. Then there was something cold against his leg, and he was awake. Huh? 
His heart spasmed like a burst of feedback from an amplifier. Suddenly, his skin was ice, every hair standing on end. What'd you say? I asked. If you were afraid to die. Or if you felt like you were at peace. Ask me in the morning. The wind howled all night in arcane and eldritch semitones through the cracks in the little cabin and around all of the lighthouse's peculiar angles. At dawn, the storm broke and there was sunlight and silence and the bitter cold of some dead alien planet. The fire had died and she could see her breath in the cabin. She tried the door and found that it was frozen shut. She tried the window, and it too was frozen, so in a panic she broke it with the poker from the fireplace and crawled outside. Sometime in the night, a giant wave had hit the cabin and frozen there. The length of the pier was similarly encased in several feet of ice. Distilled chaos, a series of singular moments lifted from the tempest of the winter night to be walked around and remarked upon like a museum sculpture in the fine sunny normality of the daytime. A trio of gulls flew past overhead, and their shadows sang across the surface of the lake, which had been frozen at the apex of its fury in a vast range of snow-swept dunes. She climbed to the top of the catwalk and was struck with an acute bout of vertigo. She found that she could not keep her eyes open for long without going temporarily snowblind. There were slats on which James was supposed to have laid a plywood walkway, but he only managed about 40 yards. Even trying to follow the catwalk to its vanishing point with her eyes made her dizzy. She climbed back down. Then she made her way to the lighthouse and turned off the light. She tied a red dish towel to a wooden spoon and hung it like a flag outside the broken cabin window and then she started a fire in the kettle and gathered some blankets and sat in the living room with James to wait for nightfall and for someone to notice. The cabin and the lighthouse were empty when the new keeper came to replace James three days later. Any number of things could have happened to him out there, but the man puzzled at the little red flag in the window. Had he fallen through the ice trying to leave? There were enough supplies to last all winter if needed, and he would have known that his replacement would be arriving soon. There was no reason to leave, or to leave without laying the rest of the walkway first, unless he was mad, or driven out. It was not until the police came and searched the place and found... Mike Haversmith's straight razor, that they knocked on Emily's door and discovered that she too was missing. When the search turned up nothing, the people in town concluded that the bodies would probably wash up on the beach come spring. That was the way of things. They never did, but by then, it was a new season and most folks were ready to move on. Who can say what happened to the two lovers? But pay no mind, they have passed into gossip already.
In a generation, they will be a tale. In two, a legend. Folklore in three. Stories. That is all. A dream within a dream. But there is a final addendum to this tale. A story well known within the Biscoff Harbor Police Department, where the MH engraved straight razor was stored for the duration of the investigation. Work on the case dragged on for many months, but police detectives recorded that the razor began to rust after only a few weeks in their possession, and continued to deteriorate rapidly after that. They wrote in their notes that it was as if it were being stored at the bottom of the lake. <laughs>